Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Sociology podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Sebastian Page, author of Black Resettlement and the Civil War. Hello, Dr. Page. Hi, how are you? Great. Tell the audience a bit about yourself and how this book project began. I am a British historian of the United States. I have had all of my education in Britain. Um, I didn't think I was going to be a historian of the United States. I had my heart set on studying 19th century Europe when I realised in the second year of my undergraduate course that I could take a number of classes that would give me a good, strong specialisation in the period from the American Revolution to the Civil War. Um, and I'd always been a bit interested by the Civil War, but never really had the chance to study it, not, not being an American myself. So I undertook that specialisation for classes, and I thought I would like to do an undergraduate thesis um, on something to do with the Civil War. But I was stuck for an idea, because in history, we would expect an undergraduate thesis to um, proceed from primary sources, the original material. And of course, this was 15 years ago in Britain, so... There wasn't much at my university library, but my supervisor said, you know what, we've just got microfilm copies of the records of the American Colonization Society, an institution founded in the early 19th century to send African Americans back, quotation marks, to Africa, um, later to its own colony of Liberia. So I was just set on a project that um, well, for my undergraduate thesis, only took a few weeks. But even for my doctoral thesis, which I studied at Oxford as I as I had done my undergraduate degree, I intended to write nothing more than what is now chapter one of this book, which is would have been an institutional study of the American Colonization Society during a period of revival, just before the Civil War and into the Civil War. And then that all took a funny turn about a year into my studies when an American graduate student, Philip Magnus, emailed me to say, 
um, could I look at some material in the British National Archives about African-American resettlement in the British West Indies, specifically Belize? And really, the topic just expanded, sorry, the projects expanded geographically and chronologically from there. Great. Now, you you had so much information in your book. Can you explain to the audience information about the 1770 Black uh, composition of the population and what was going on at that time? About the time of the American Revolution, um, one-fifth of the population of the United States was African-American, mostly enslaved. Um, African-Americans represented an intellectual problem for the founding fathers. Um, The Enlightenment philosophy to which they subscribed told them that all men were created equal, um, but that the influences of social environment might degrade some people. Um, I have a colleague at Cambridge called Nicholas Guyot, who's really written the book about the early colonisation movement, and he points out that the founding generation found it harder to be racists than we generally imagine. And, you know, the ideological background was that African-Americans were inherently equal, though perhaps degraded, and that slavery was wrong. It was wrong economically, it was wrong morally, it was wrong religiously. Um, But by the early 19th century, um, even as as African-Americans diminished as a proportion of the population, down from about a fifth at the time of the revolution to more like an eighth by the Civil War, Um, many white leaders began to see African-Americans as an incongruous element in the United States, which ought to be a white man's country. They saw slavery as a source of economic stagnation, um, which was a phenomenon they could see happening as the northern states pulled ahead of the southern states for economic diversification. And African-Americans, they thought, repelled white immigrants, though actually plenty of white immigrants from Europe kept coming over. And so several intellectual strands converged, really, to to settle upon a movement that would try to remove African-Americans to somewhere, um, not necessarily Africa initially, um, but the American Colonization Society, which dates from the late 18-teens, would combine those... um, economic and intellectual strands about the problem of African-Americans, the the, the presumed problem, it would capitalise on a missionary spirit to send African-Americans as missionaries to West Africa. And it would suggest that at some distant providential point, America might be whitened totally, that it would be possible to get rid of all African-Americans, although any projects inevitably involved starting on a small scale. And of course, what we know in hindsight is that um, although for other reasons, African-Americans did continue to diminish as a proportion of the population until um, a few decades after the Civil War, and that really had nothing to do with colonisation, which failed to remove more than about 20 or 30,000 African-Americans. And yet, incredibly, white Americans kept coming back to it as an answer that could solve the, the problem of slavery and the, the problem of race, you know, the, the so-called as a construct, um, in a way that was intellectually very simple, but logistically very difficult. Now, you, you stated in your book that by 1860, some Blacks did want to leave for another land. Explain that to us. 
Yes, from the early days of the American Colonization Society. Well, no, even before then, there were um, always some African African Americans interested in emigrating. In fact, there was nothing quite like a white institution being set up, the American Colonization Society, to um, to start dissuading African Americans from the idea because there there is a difference between wanting to emigrate oneself and, and having a white person suggest that you should do it and that you are very silly not to and that you know perhaps you might have to be forced by law. Um, so over the decades, but particularly in the 1820s and as you say on the cusp of the Civil War, um, a number of African Americans did consider emigrating to various places. Um, the well-known ones are Liberia, which was less popular among those free Northern African Americans who were free to choose, um, Haiti and Canada. Um, also, I found in my research, the British West Indies was um, somewhere else that African Americans went um, in the late 1830s. Um, you, with, with any question of migration, there's always this question of how much was a push factor and how much was a pull. Um, some black Americans wanted to leave because they felt the oppression of of state laws, particularly the black laws, which discouraged their, their settlement in certain states, or they felt exclusion from society or civic institutions. Um, but there were also positive draws um, to the various places they went, and quite what that draw was differed by place. Um, Canada was somewhere that would allow them to stay close to home while providing a, a, a haven from slavery for, for fugitive slaves, so-called. Um, Haiti was uh, a land that had shaken off the shackles of colonialism and slavery and got its independence from France. And so that appealed to uh, some black Americans who saw it as as a base of um, diasporic pan-black regeneration. And then on that note, um, some African-Americans thought of going to what had become merely an ancestral homeland, West Africa. Um, The numbers involved, even on the cusp of the Civil War, were still low. And as some critics of African-American emigrationists pointed out, they were very good at talking about emigrating and not so good at actually going. And if they went, not so good at necessarily staying. but I would say that given the imbalance of power um, in the United States on the cusp of the Civil War, um, emigration really did seem like the only answer to, to some African Americans who had been denied US citizenship by the Supreme Court's notorious Dred Scott decision of 1857, which was really just the last in many, many signs that they should consider moving. Now, what did you find about the Republican Party and resettlement? Yeah, um, the Republican Party and resettlement. Yeah, um, scholars have known for um, well, they've known since the Civil War that this, this new anti-slavery party that took off in the North in the eighteen fifties, the Republican Party, had a faction that took quite strongly to. African-American colonization, which I call resettlement, um, but that's more of my own sort of returning there to, to, to include a, a broader family of ideas um, for having African-Americans migrate. Um, the Republican Party 
didn't formally adopt colonization in its um, national platform for 1856 or 1860, though it came very close to doing so in 1860. It was one of those ideas that certainly attracted um, a lot of what you might call the lowest common denominator of the Republican Party, those representatives uh, and senators from the, the lower north and from the Midwest who were less overt abolitionists than than people from New England or the upper north would have been and who were a bit keener on stressing how colonization and a policy of anti-slavery and exclusion from the territories would would allow the United States to be whitened and to become uh, a more prosperous place as well as a more morally correct place for, for, for no longer having slavery. Um, it gets particularly het up around the question of Abraham Lincoln, who of course was a, a Republican from the, the lower north, um, the state of Illinois, um, because historians argue a lot about whether the support of many Republicans such as Abraham Lincoln was just political posturing to appease white racists or whether those politicians actually believed in it. And I would say that that's a false dichotomy that you, of course you want support if you're a politician, but that such politicians also genuinely believed that this would be the answer to the, a problem they'd set themselves by saying they were going to get rid of slavery and not give any sense of what would come after it. You know, if you remove African-Americans from the framework of slavery, who knows quite what happens next? Um, This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, you talked about the Dominican Republic. I thought that was an interesting story of that location. Uh, explain the resettlement there. Yes, resettlement in the Dominican Republic is... Well, the the thing about the Dominican Republic is it's one of two countries on the island of um, Hispaniola. Um, Confusingly, the whole island can be referred to as Santo Domingo, um, which the Dominican Republic can also be. And also on the western end, you have Haiti, which was Saint-Domingue to the French. Um, African-Americans moved to the Dominican Republic in the 1820s when it wasn't actually part of the Dominican Republic. It had been conquered by Haiti, and it was part of a wider scheme um, by the Haitian government to bring African-Americans over um, with their expertise and their financial capital. And because an African-American presence might force the United States to recognize Haiti, which, which remained a pariah state in many ways for its history of slave insurrection, um, but there were there was there, there, there was a substantial colony of African Americans in the northeast of what would um, be restored as the Dominican Republic when when it shook off Haitian rule in 1844 um, at Samana Bay, which was a, a natural harbor that, that most of the powers coveted. Um, Fifty years after, after the the Black Americans settled there. Um, a United States mission would consider 
annexing the Dominican Republic and, and look at that harbour very covetously because, you know, the, having a, a prior settlement of African-Americans might be a toehold for US expansionism. Um, during the Civil War in the Dominican Republic, there were some white American agents, um, William and Jane Casneau and um, J.W. Fabens, who periodically tried to introduce African-Americans um, during the Civil War. I mean, U.S. promoters in with interests in most of the Caribbean really took a signal from Civil War policy to, to start touting schemes to import African-Americans. But it was always a little... Um, it was always a little tentative in the case of the Dominican Republic, because although Dominicans saw themselves as very racially relaxed, you know, not not um, not prone to Anglo-American ideas of a sharp polarity between black and white. In fact, Dominicans, too, um, viewed darker skinned people at the lower end of the spectrum and uh, as being something akin to Haitians. And so these US promoters only got so far and realized they would be rubbing up slightly against Dominican attitudes if um you know if uh, such an expedition proceeded and so th- those promoters switched back to uh, trying to encourage white american immigration which for any latin american state was really the very unachievable gold standard during the 19th century now, you did talk about alternatives to resettlement, and I, I just found that to be fascinating. And you talked about the 14th Amendment that extended the Homestead Act to Blacks. So kind of talk a little about the Homestead Act and then the alternatives to resettlement. Yes, Um you're talking about my last chapter there, which is a, a strange one because it actually starts at the earliest date, really, of any of my chapters. Um, the way that historians have treated colonization and resettlement is that there's this um, very unpleasant movement, which is which is true, um, called colonization, and then there are there is an alternative vision, a better vision, the original founders' vision of integration. And that there's a sharp dichotomy between them. Um, my last chapter on alternatives to foreign resettlement complicates things because it shows how, particularly in the form of internal colonization within what would become the contiguous United States, it was possible to believe at once in resettlement of African Americans, you know, sending them quite some distance, so something beyond what we would think of as local segregation, while hoping that they might act as agents of US expansion, as in of, of the contiguous United States, let, let alone overseas expansion, or even hope that in time, you know, they could be reintegrated as, as citizens, having been given a bit of time through being sent to the periphery of the United States to you know, get up to white levels of, of training and political sophistication and uh, you know, other kind of ideas about improvement like that. Um, but, of course, the, the, this movement comes to a head um, during the Civil War, as it does in all of the chapters of my book, in a way. And at that point, really, it's clear, although the idea of sending African-Americans to the West, an, an idea that African-Americans themselves is, um, it's 
as is true of the, the colonization movement entirely. It's a nice intellectual get out. But in the end, if you're a white politician, you want to reserve that land for white settlers. And uh, the Homestead Act made that um, abundantly clear. Um, it was an 1862 act, one of the key acts of the 37th Congress, a very um, vigorous, active Congress in, in the first half of the Civil War. And it gave big tranches of land to those who were citizens of the United States, um, whether current or pending, which is really a way of saying white or, or white immigrants. Um, African-Americans would become eligible after the Civil War for um, land under the Homestead Act, but already a lot of the very best um, land had gone by then. And so really at the end of that early fluid-seeming period of reconstruction, um, re- African-Americans' resettlement initiatives and whites' initiatives for black Americans end up looking again to foreign colonization. Um, you know, the, the United States is reaching the point where, um, you know, in white eyes, it's filling up. I mean, of course, it always was full with native peoples, um, but, you know, that doesn't feature in their calculations so much. So when a person reads your book, what do you want them to remember? I want them to remember that as ridiculous as it seems now, the single largest solution that Americans foresaw to what they called the race question, or or sometimes the Negro question, was that black people should leave the country. Whites would not necessarily force them to by law, although you know, that as we know from recent times, there are all sorts of shades of grey where coercion is concerned. You don't have to force someone to leave the country at bayonet points to to pass laws very hostile, that is very hostile to making them stay. Um, we call this in the UK um, uh, creating a hostile climate. In the United States, it's known more as the idea of self-deportation. Um, deny difficult minority groups um, access to facilities to the to equality before the law and and um, yeah, other prescriptions like that, and they should do the wise thing, uh, and the, they should do the sensible thing and go. Um, so the question is really, given that this does seem like a prehistory of that kind of activity, and um, has this always been the normative American approach to race relations? Um, you know, we we take. Th- th- a certain historical school of thought that has particularly dominated since the modern civil rights era would say that integration is the default thing. You know, there's always a narrative of progress running through American race relations. And okay, you know, there are bad moments, there are backward steps, they happen. Um, But American liberty is ever expanding for ever more groups. And I am coming at it in... You know, I'm flipping it around, I suppose, and saying, well, maybe separation's normal, except for, you know, the early period of reconstruction. And maybe there was a renewal of that revolutionary belief that you could truly integrate African-Americans. And I mean, you know, sort of socially as, as well as just politically and legally. And that it really doesn't take long, however, for whites to encourage and African-Americans themselves to turn toward um, the idea that they might get out and leave the country. And 
people might ask, okay, well, fine, you know, it didn't work out, did it? You know, the numbers involved are pathetic. It's a constant failure. Surely that diminishes the significance, you know, that this is historical antiquarianism at its worst. But I would say, no, um, the, the repeat failure of resettlement efforts increases its significance because it shows just how intellectually poor many white thinkers were when when it came to thinking about how they might integrate African Americans. And the fact they kept coming back to this idea that had failed so many times shows how how intellectually bankrupt they were. Um, The 19th century, after all, was a, a century of massive migration and of presumed racial destinies to go to certain latitudes of the world. And had African Americans gone in large numbers, you know, I don't think we would have any problem with this movement. It would look like another 19th century migration. But the fact is, it was a consistent failure, whether you're talking about sending African Americans to Liberia, Haiti, Canada, Trinidad, Mexico, Brazil, Ecuador, the Dominican Republic, you know, they all come up. And yet, and yet, despite all that failure, um, one kept seeing these these very fresh-faced seeming promoters of colonization and resettlement who thought that this time you know that they would really nail it and that they would have better luck well i've taken up a lot of your time i've enjoyed our conversation what are you working on next i am working on two projects um one grows out of this project and the other does nothing of the sort um The one that grows out of this project is um, to do with a number of former Confederates who left the United States after the Civil War. Um, In fact, it probably counts as the single largest emigration of white Americans. I mean, we we don't think of white Americans as an emigrating group, right? You know, they have always been there and it's other groups that immigrate to the United States. So what I'm doing with that project is I've collected a lot of material on it, but I'm giving it to colleagues based in Britain who are also working on this and letting them work with it. And then my second project, the one that my heart is far more in, that I spend more time on, is is my acting on a, a, a strange desire I've really had since childhood. The book I've always wanted to write, uh, and for a wider audience, is about the end of capital punishment in Britain, um, something that has always fascinated me. But it, it does mean retraining and knocking myself all the way down the the academic hierarchy to having you know an undergraduate level grasp of criminology and the criminal law, which I have to say is fantastic. It, it, you get so bored of the same topic, and it it's lovely to start over and feel intellectually fresh, um, even though I have, in a sense, thrown away everything I'd previously done. Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Thank you. Thank you.